0: Well, devotion is something that is easier to appreciate than to imitate. I appreciate the devotion that athletes have. If you like to watch football or basketball or soccer or whatever it is, the devotion they have to lifting weights, to running drills, to practicing, to competing. I admire that, but I have no plans. (laughs) to imitate it. And yet we are all devoted to something. You may be devoted to your kids, devoted to your work, devoted to traveling, devoted to a project you're working on, devoted to any number of things. And yet devotion is also not, or doesn't have to be, an individual thing. We can be devoted to things if you go back to the example of an athlete, it's not just one athlete, but a team of athletes that have to be devoted uh, to the same things in order to be successful. I want us to think about this morning what we are devoted to here as a church. As a church family, what is it that we have devoted ourselves to? What is it that we should devote ourselves to? And as we're thinking about that, I want us to turn our attention to Acts chapter 2. We've been making our way through um, the book of Acts recently, and we've come to the end of chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 42. I'll read verse 42 to 47. And what we're going to see here is in this final section of this chapter is what the first Christians were devoted to and what their life together was like. So let me read for us uh, these verses, beginning in Acts 2.42. It says, "...and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers." Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, this brief statement in verse 42 about the devotion of the first church is priceless. I mean, think what you would give to know this if this had not been included in the Bible what you would give to know what it was like to be a part of the first church. What were their priorities? What did they care about? What did they do? How did they interact with each other? What what were they devoted to? And in this one brief sentence, we get a full picture of what animated and motivated the early church, the first Christians. Remember that what has just happened is uh, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached the gospel. The Holy Spirit came down and Jesus poured out the Spirit from heaven and uh, as the Spirit came upon them, they began to preach in all these different languages and people gathered to hear what was going on and Peter preached the good news about Jesus. He preached about Jesus' death and resurrection. He preached about Jesus' ascension into heaven where he's seated at God's right hand. He preached that Jesus is the Lord, that he's God, that he's Christ. He's the Messiah, the Savior. And he called upon the people to repent of their rejection of Jesus and to turn to him and to be baptized in his name, which is a way of publicly affirming their commitment to Jesus. And many of them did. About 3,000 did. So this is the birth of the first church right there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And then Luke gives us a, a window into what that first church was like. The first thing he says that they were devoted to is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Of course, at that time, the apostles were still alive, right? We've never met the apostles, but the apostles were there. They were ministering in Jerusalem. Peter, of course, is one of the apostles. The other apostles were there as well. They were preaching. They were teaching. And these who had heard Peter preach and had responded to the gospel and turned to Jesus, they recognized in the apostles the authorized messengers of Jesus. Jesus has ascended into heaven, but he left his apostles to preach and teach and shepherd his people. And so what they did was they devoted themselves to listening to the apostles, to hearing their teaching, to putting their teaching into practice, to obeying it, right? They devoted themselves to what the apostles were teaching. Now, we can't go hear Peter preach, obviously, right? But we can imitate their devotion by listening to the scriptures. Because in the Bible, we have the teaching of the apostles, or your translation might even say the apostles' doctrine, right? We have that recorded for us in the scriptures. Many of the books of the New Testament were written by men who were apostles themselves, Matthew, for example, was one of the apostles. So was John. So was Paul. So was Peter, of course. And other books of the New Testament were not written by men who were apostles, but were written by those who were closely connected to the apostles. So, for example, Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, he was closely tied to Peter. So many see the Gospel of Mark as as sort of a a recording of Peter's preaching about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Luke, of course, was a traveling companion of Paul. So the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were written uh, by someone who was a close companion of Paul. James and Jude were likely half-brothers of Jesus. So all these writings we have in the New Testament are given to us ultimately by God, right, by the work of the Spirit, through these apostles and close companions of the apostles. So to the extent that we devote ourselves to the scriptures, to hearing what the Bible has to say and seeking to put it into practice, we are imitating their devotion to the apostles' teaching. That's something we can and should be devoted to as well. So that's the first thing. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were also devoted to, it says, the fellowship <clears throat> Excuse me, and the breaking of bread. I put those two together because... As we'll see in a moment, I don't think you can separate them. The word fellowship there, this is one of, I don't use Greek words a whole lot, but this is one you may have heard of before. If you heard the word koinonia, right? It's a word that means fellowship, it means partnership, it means participation, right? And so when he says he, they devoted themselves to fellowship, right, um, that is a, a richer word than we often realize. Right? So um, when we talk about fellowship, we talk about being together right, and, and, and enjoying each other's company, fellowshipping together, but fellowship created by what? Fellowship around what? What is it that brings us together in this fellowship? Paul uses this same word in Philippians 1.5 when he talks about his partnership, and that's the same word, it's just translated differently there, partnership, koinonia, in the gospel with the church at Philippi from the first day until now. So I've got a fellowship with you in the gospel, in the faith. Later in, or in a different place, in First Corinthians chapter 10, there's a passage we don't often think about or talk about when we think and talk about the Lord's Supper, but we should. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 and 17, Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, is it not a fellowship, In the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation, a fellowship in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. So Paul says, when we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, when we take that cup and when we take that bread together is there not a fellowship, a participation that is happening there in the blood of Christ, in the body of Christ? And is there not a sense in which our unity as the body of Christ is expressed as we take one loaf of bread broken and parceled out among us? Does that not symbolize our unity even as we are individual members? We are one body. And that's part of our fellowship that's part of our communion. that's part of our partnership. So I don't think you can celebrate or separate his mention of fellowship from the breaking of bread. Now the breaking of bread could simply refer to sharing a meal together. You sit down and break bread together. you have a, you have a meal, you have a fellowship. But in this place, I think it also carries uh, overtones of celebrating the Lord's Supper. of of having this communion, this fellowship meal together. So when it says the breaking of bread here, right, we see the same phrase later in the book of Acts chapter 20, where it says on the first day of the week, so that'll be Sunday, this sounds like it's a worship service, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So we got together on Sunday, and Paul was preaching, and we were breaking bread. I think that's likely a communion meal, a Lord's Supper meal. Ultimately, I don't think you can separate your fellowship from your communion. Right? That when we come together around the Lord's table to celebrate the Lord's Supper, that is in one sense the apex of our fellowship, right? the highest expression of our unity that then trickles out into the rest of the life of the church because when we come together around that table together, what we are reminding ourselves and what we are telling the world is that what brings all these different people together at this particular place, at this particular time, and knits their lives together is the joint belief that Jesus' death and resurrection has changed everything that our sins have been forgiven, that we have new life, that one day Jesus is coming back for us, and we might disagree on a thousand other things, but we agree on that, and we hold that to be of prime importance, and that is what has knit our lives and hearts together. So they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship and the breaking of bread. Now, when I, when I was preparing this um, last week, I felt like I could probably just like, launch from here and talk for the rest of the sermon about the importance of sharing meals together, right? um, not just from experience, but from the Bible. Think about, in the Bible, how often a significant moment in Scripture is accompanied by a shared meal. Right, when, when God comes to Abraham, uh, he has two angels coming with him. They come to visit and he makes a, a promise once again to Abraham about he's going to have a, a child. In fact, Sarah is finally going to have a son next year. When they come, what does Abraham do? He, he tells Sarah, we've got company. We, we need to prepare a meal. And he serves them. Um, in the book of Exodus, there's this story doesn't it get told very often where Moses goes up on the mountain, we know about that, but the, the elders of Israel also go up on the mountain and they're, they're formalizing their covenant with God. And they, in some sense, are allowed to see God and up there on the mountain in the presence of God, they eat a meal together. Uh, of course, the Lord's Supper, right? The Last Supper, Jesus experiences with his disciples. There's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb when Christ returns. All throughout the Bible, these key moments are accompanied by a meal shared together. And let me just ask you from practical experience, how many truly close friendships do you have with people you have not shared multiple meals with? Probably not very many. The people you are closest to are likely the people that you have spent the most time around the table with. Why is that? Something about the way that God made us, designed us, makes these simple realities of great importance. Just being in the same place, face-to-face, sharing a meal, and then especially when it's around some common person or purpose or goal, we're remembering Christ, we're fellowshipping as a body, That knits our lives together in a unique and powerful way. So I I, I want you to think about this. Vibrant church life does not require clever programs. Vibrant church life requires the work of the Spirit, first of all, And it requires devotion to a few simple but transformative realities. Scripture, fellowship in Christ around the table, and prayer. It's not complicated. It's not expensive. It's not hard. It's very basic. But this is what God shows us united the first church, and it's what's united every true church since then. When you have a group of people who come together who say, I love God's word, I love Jesus, and because you love Jesus, I want to sit down with you around the table, I want to study the word with you, I want to pray with you, I want to fellowship with you, there you have a vibrant church life. Now, I mentioned uh, not only Scripture and fellowship around the table, but also prayer. That's the next thing that he mentions in verse 42. They were devoted to the prayers. Now, there's a couple different things that could refer to. Uh, If it really is the prayers, which is not the way we would expect it to read, right? We would think devoted themselves to prayer. That's what we would normally say. If it is saying they were devoted to the prayers what prayers would they be devoted to well perhaps the lord's prayer right i mean that jesus taught them how to pray pray then like this so it could be a reference to the lord's prayer it could be a reference to the psalms right which are the prayers that we have like kind of all grouped together in the bible uh, we're going to see later When we get to Acts chapter 4, Lord willing, uh, them praying through part of Psalm 2, as they have seen that fulfilled and then reflected in their own experience. So it could be a reference to praying the Psalms together. Uh, It could be a a devotion to certain hours of prayer. For example, at the beginning of the next chapter, it says that they were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. So there were particular times that they would set apart that were devoted to prayer. It could be any of those things. Or it could just mean that they were devoted to prayer in general. We saw this even back in chapter 1 where they were in that upper room before the Spirit was poured out, and it says all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Either way, this is what animated their life as a church. Scripture, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, communion together, and Praying together. Now, not everything in the book of Acts is something that we are expected to imitate, right? In fact, the very next set of verses, we're going to encounter some things that we can't imitate, most likely, right? Um, So, not everything in Acts is something we're supposed to imitate, but I think it's safe to say that this one, verse 42, is one that we should aim to imitate. And there's always room to grow in our devotion to scripture and to fellowship and to prayer. But I think, I mean, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't say, um, over the last few months, I don't know about you, but I feel like the, the sense of fellowship and love and communion and devotion here has just heightened even more. I mean, it was good before, don't get me wrong. But I I, I have just sensed a a fullness, a a richness of God's presence, God's work among this church body uh, recently that uh, we can't pat ourselves on the back for because nobody did anything, right? But just God is at work and God is doing good things in us and among us and that's something we should be uh, giving thanks to him for, so... And I'm extremely grateful. Um, okay, so that's what they were devoted to, but that's not all that was going on. So verse 43 says, awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Right? So people were in awe, uh, literally it can be translated even fear. Right. They were just amazed by what God was doing signs and wonders were happening this is not new this was going on during the ministry of Jesus it continues through the ministry of the apostles you see it all all through the book of acts as well but the thing i want you to notice about this is that he doesn't say here that the apostles were doing many signs and wonders he could have said that but what he says is many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles so if they're being done through the apostles, who's doing them? Yeah, I'm hearing all the right answers, right? So if we go back to the opening line of the book of Acts, remember that he said, he said, uh, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach, implying that Jesus is still doing things. Jesus is still at work. Peter said in his sermon in Acts 2, Jesus is the one who's poured out the Spirit. And I think it's safe for us to say that Jesus is the one who is working through the apostles. The Holy Spirit is the one working through the apostles. God is the one working through the apostles, doing these signs and wonders. It's not things that they do, or that they are able to do on their own. It is things that God is doing through them. And we see this in the book of Hebrews as well. In Hebrews chapter 2. It says uh, about the gospel. The great, great salvation that we've received. That we've heard about. He says it was declared at first by the Lord. And it was attested to us. By those who heard. While God also. Bore witness. By signs and wonders. And various miracles. And by gifts of the Holy Spirit. Distributed according to his will. So. What was God doing? God was working through the apostles, doing signs and wonders, so that people would have it confirmed for them that what the apostles were saying about Jesus was true. That this was the truth, this is the gospel, this is the word that they should receive. Now, uh, that's how God worked at particular times, but that's not how God worked all the time. Right, so in... In this instance, these signs and wonders are evidence that God is at work through the apostles, but that does not mean that when there are not signs and wonders, that God is not at work. If that were the case, we'd have to rule out a lot of things that happen in the New Testament too and say God wasn't at work there. That's not the case. This is not normal. This is not what happens all the time. This is what happens some of the time, but it's not what happens all the time. It's not necessary To be, um, for God to be at work, for there to be miraculous, supernatural, surprising things going on, he can do that, he can do that whenever he wants to, right? He's able to, there's no doubt, but we shouldn't expect that to be the norm. We shouldn't expect that to be there all the time, and we shouldn't say, well, if that's not happening, then God's not really there, God's not really at work. That's simply not what the Bible teaches, So God was at work through them doing signs and wonders. And then we get this a little bit fuller glimpse of the life of the church in verses 44 to 47. Verse 44 says, All who believed were together and were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So they had a common life, right? They were bound together. They gathered together. They believed together. They believed believed the same things. And they were caring for one another sacrificially. They were willing to sell and and give generously in order to take care of those who had needs. Remember, many of the people who heard the gospel on the day of Pentecost had come to Jerusalem from where they lived, scattered throughout the Roman Empire, to celebrate the feast. They didn't live there. They probably didn't pack enough stuff to stay long-term, right? So some of the needs probably arose from people who said, you know, I came planning to visit for, I don't know, a couple of weeks, and then I met Jesus, I heard Peter preach, I got baptized, here I am in this church, I'm not going home, but I don't have my stuff, I don't have a job, I don't have, you know, what am I going to do? And so... That's probably a significant part of why people in the church were having, well, I'll take care of you, I'll help you, I'll sell this, I'll I'll give you this. They were sacrificially caring for one another. They were worshiping together daily, verse 46. says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So they were worshiping together at the temple. They were gathering together uh, in their homes. They were experiencing fellowship. Here I think breaking bread probably is is more just a reference to sharing meals together. Though at this point early in the church, it's very possible that just about every time that they sat down to a meal, they were thinking of the Lord's Supper. They were thinking of Jesus' death and resurrection. So they were sharing meals together and they were experiencing gladness. They were praising God. They had favor with the people. All right, verse, um, second half of verse 46, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And then verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. So the people around them thought well of them, right? And they were just, their lives were overflowing with joy. I mean, think about this. You know what it's like. Some of you experience this uh, for yourselves personally. Others of you have have witnessed it in other people's lives. When someone comes to faith in Christ late in life, they don't do it half-heartedly, right? They are full of joy and passion. They are committed. They are on fire. Imagine a church of 3,000 people who just came to faith. I mean, overflowing with joy and gladness and gratitude and, and, and you know, their devotion, right? Is no surprise. That is what we would expect. And then finally it says, that uh, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost, but it didn't stop there. Day after day after day, more people were being added to the church. More people were coming to faith in Christ. More people were being saved, which is exactly what Jesus told them he would do. We read earlier from Matthew 16 on purpose, because after Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, one of the things Jesus said was, I will build my church. And what is he doing? Is is Peter building the church here? Nope. Are the apostles building the church here? Nope. Jesus is building the church. It is the Lord, it says, who added to their number day by day. The Lord was at work saving people, adding to their number, building His church just like he promised he would do, and he has continued to do that ever since. Uh, Individual churches might grow or decline, right? Church in certain countries, right, might grow or decline, but the church as a whole, the church as the body of Christ, is always being built by Jesus. So what do we do with a passage like this, how do we apply it? How should we think about it? Well, let's ask the Lord to help us renew our devotion as a church to those things that the first Christians were devoted to. We don't want to just be... Happy where we are, we want to grow. We want to, we want to mature. We want to become more like Christ. We want to be a, a more healthy body of Christ. We want to be more devoted to the teaching of the apostles in God's Word. We want to be more devoted to fellowship, to communion, to prayer. When people trusting in Jesus, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, gather together regularly to give themselves to these things and to each other and ultimately to the Lord. There is no richer life we can experience. No greater joy or fellowship that we can share. No better taste of the joys of heaven that await us. No place on earth we would rather be. Let's pray.